I can tell instantly who's into Christmas and who's not. Because some of you guys were like swaying and then eventually singing and others were just sitting there. Now, there was supposed to be a video, I'm sorry, that was all we could do, it was a bit of a techno problem, but I think that's a great song, right? I don't know about you, but it's a classic Christmas tune, it's been around for about um, half a century, and there's obviously differences between, um, you know, a northern hemisphere at Christmas and New Zealand, I mean, we don't have snow or mistletoe and all that sort of stuff, but I don't know about you, but when I hear that Christmas song or even some of the Christmas carols, I get, I get pretty excited. I'm, I'm, I'm keen for Christmas. And I don't know what what's, uh, makes you keen for Christmas, but I've got a couple of options here. Uh, are you keen for Christmas when you hear Christmas carols? Who said no, Glenn Tetlow? Gee, Grinch. Okay. Uh, what about this? When you when you see or get to start decorating, you know Christmas. Yeah, I know. I know. There's several of you out here who have already got your Christmas tree up with your special decorations. Almost okay. What about the lights? The Christmas lights. You get excited for Christmas when you see those. Advent calendars. Yeah. Or just you're straight to the chocolate when it comes to you know. Don't worry about the thing in that. Just get to the chocolate. Um. <coughs> Are you excited for Christmas because you know that you're going to be hosting, oh, sorry, you're going to be potentially watching Christmas movies? Yeah? Okay, that's interesting. I didn't, yeah, okay, cool. Um, what about you're excited for Christmas because you know you're going to be hosting family, extended family for the holidays for an extended period of time, possibly longer than it should be? Um, maybe you get excited for Christmas because there's the promise of presents. You know, get some stockings in there. Maybe you're, you get excited for Christmas because it means that you get to start planning a holiday, hopefully, a well-deserved holiday. Maybe you get excited for Christmas because there's Black Friday sales. Yeah? Come on. Come on, bag of bargain, 70% off. Of course, they inflated the, inflated the price, you know, for the week before. I appreciate that Christmas... Um, <clears throat> Christmas comes with baggage, right? Some of it's light and it's fun and it's festive and then there's other baggage that comes with Christmas which can be quite heavy. Like Christmas does take extra effort and it does take extra energy and there's often a range of emotions that kind of come through every Christmas. And so as great a song as that is that we just listened to, perhaps Christmas isn't always the most wonderful time of the year for everybody. Uh, in fact, many people struggle with Christmas. Let me give you some examples of this. So a recent survey, a recent research came out saying that 60% of New Zealanders are uh, feeling quite stressed about the costs, the financial costs. So the whole rocketing inflation and cost of living and all those sorts of things, many people are very worried about their finances being quite stretched over the season. Uh, another survey came out saying that 68% of working Kiwis are feeling burnt out as the end of year approaches and they're not confident that they're going to be able to complete the work that's kind of piling up around them and they're unsure even if the holiday period they're going to feel rested and recharged over that. So that's pretty tough. But I think perhaps, perhaps some of the saddest statistics <coughs> around Christmas uh, actually in terms of family violence. So these 
tend to skyrocket over the festive period. So according to official reports, last year the New Zealand Police responded to 175,573 family violence events. Now if you break that down, as I have, that works out to be an average of one every four minutes. But in Christmas and New Year, that call-out happens more frequently. So last December, there was 17,000, more than 17,000 family violence call-outs. That's one every three minutes. And so that is a terrible situation for our country to be in. You know? That is tragic that families are going through this. And the majority of them are probably unreported. Financial stress, substance abuse, family pressures, all those sorts of things can trigger these really difficult situations. So for many people, Christmas is, is not the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, for a number of people, it's arguably the worst time of the year. But I want to just remind you this morning that the very first Christmas did not start out as the most wonderful time of the year either. In fact, the first Christmas was quite stressful. There were relationships that were strained and, and the people in that first Christmas went through all sorts of trials and tensions. So if, if you've got a Bible, um, uh, feel free to turn to it, or you might have it on your phone, swipe to it, to Matthew chapter 1. And, if, and if, just as an aside, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, come and talk to us. Talk to someone with a blue tag. We would absolutely love to give you one. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> this, what we're going to read this morning uh, by this guy called Matthew, he, was, he wrote one of the first biographical accounts of the birth of Jesus. And so Matthew's really good because he gives a bit of a backstory. He kind of sets the scene and writes a bit about Jesus' ancestral line and gives us some information about his parents. Uh, and so he tells us about his earthly father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. So we're going to read um, just a couple of lines from this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. There is uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of layers of complexity in those four short sentences, isn't there, that we tend to just kind of skim over. So Mary's engaged to Joseph, and if you're familiar with Jewish culture, you may be aware that the Jewish culture had a marriage process which took three steps. So first up, the families had to agree to the union. I don't know how that worked, whether the guy has asked the families or whatever, but there was a number of social and economic factors that were considered by the families, and, and of course, you know, most mothers, like most mothers, a Jewish mother would probably want to decide if that girl was right for her boy. I don't know how that goes. Anyway, so once the families have agreed, then the second step was a public announcement was made, uh, and the couple were engaged. But there was a little bit more than, you know, the couple taking some selfies with some love hearts and posting them on Facebook or something. It was quite um, involved. To demonstrate their engagement, both the man and the woman <coughs> made a promise to be faithful to each other in the presence of witnesses. And so that, that promise was actually a legally binding contract. 
So I guess the modern equivalent would be a prenup, you know, that celebrities or ridiculously wealthy people tend to, tend to do before they get married. They sign this legally binding contract. And so in the Jewish culture, that formal engagement could only be broken by death or by divorce. It was pretty serious. And so there was another important factor is that while the couple were formally engaged, they still, they still lived apart. Uh, and so that time of engagement was to help them both prepare for marriage. Uh, and for that reason, sex was not yet permitted. So this is the situation that Joseph and Mary are in when we read this story. They're formally engaged, they're not yet married, and then Joseph finds out that his fiance is pregnant and Joseph's not the father. I mean, man, if you were writing a script for Shortland Street... This would be right up there, wouldn't it? And so you can only imagine just how devastated Joseph must have been. Not only does he feel betrayed, but then Mary's apparent unfaithfulness is going to bring a huge social stigma to her and to him. I mean, people will be talking. It's very hard to hide a bump in a small village that they lived in, and there would be a significant public disapproval it's a very, very messy situation. So Joseph, you think about it, he's got quite a difficult dilemma uh, to figure out. He's, he's engaged to his partner. She's been unfaithful. And according to Jewish law, the other partner has the right to break off the marriage. In fact, in the original language, that literally was divorce. So that was how he could finish it up. And on top of that, the civil authorities actually had the power to order that the unfaithful partner be executed. <laughs> Whoa, next level, right? So the punishment of death was brought upon the unfaithful person because of the shame that they had brought upon themselves and their family. So this is a really tense situation that Joseph is in. He's got to decide, will he just divorce Mary or will he actually step aside and let the authorities come in and have her killed? That's a pretty tough call. And so the interesting thing is that both of those options would send a very clear message that Joseph himself, not at fault. If he chose the divorce or the death, he's still going to be vindicated. He, he's going to be saved from the shame and the, the social stigma that Mary has clearly brought upon herself. So keep that in mind because we get a glimpse of, of the character of Joseph and actually the compassion that he has. He decides he's going to spare Mary's life and he's going to try to minimize this public disgrace and he's going to quietly break off the engagement. But you think about that. That is, that is a heart-wrenching decision. I mean, no one wants to abandon the one that they love. And then in the story... God intervenes with a third option. Look at this. <clears throat> As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
So I don't know about you, I'm guessing here that Joseph was probably pretty relieved. Okay, he gets some direct guidance from God through a dream. But actually, that adds to the complexity of the situation. First of all, Joseph's got to decide if this is a legit message from God, or is he just dreaming, which could be difficult to work out. And then once he gets his head around that, he's he's got to... understand and appreciate that his fiance has actually not been unfaithful, that somehow miraculously she is carrying the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior who's going to save his people from their sins. So if Joseph chooses to marry her, he's going to be the earthly father to the very son of God. That is a big responsibility, right? You don't want to parent the son of God wrong, right? So this is added to the stress that Joseph's under, and he, and he really wrestles with what to do. And in the end, he makes his decision. This is what we read. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Now you just appreciate that for a second. That is not an easy decision. The, the option that God presented was arguably no less harder than the divorce or the death option. I mean, choosing to continue the engagement and to marry Mary while she's already pregnant, Joseph knew that both of them would then carry that social stigma for the rest of their lives. And and I don't know, again, this is just me speculating, it is possible that the extended families of Mary and Joseph might have even got caught up in that drama. You know, perhaps Mary and Joseph were excluded. Perhaps they didn't get invited to the family events because of what they've done. I mean, would you really want this young woman claiming that she was impregnated by God to be your daughter-in-law? Certainly, however it panned out, it was a rocky start to a marriage, right? And, and that build-up to that first Christmas must have been hugely stressful. So, if those social and familial stress wasn't enough for Mary and Joseph, both of them were under political and physical pressures for that first Christmas. So in the first century, the Jewish people had been absorbed into the Roman Empire, and the Roman occupation brought a number of political and social restrictions for the Jewish people. So let's just have a quick look at what one of the other biographers of Jesus wrote about his birth. This guy's called Luke. And we're going to read a wee bit about um, his description of the first Christmas in Luke chapter 2. This is what we read. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you probably just sort of skim over some of those details, but I think we miss that that requirement to to register for the census would have been hugely disruptive. So the census was really just a a revenue-gathering exercise for the Romans. First thing they wanted to determine was if there was, um, or how many eligible men there were in the empire to be conscripted into the army. And the second thing they wanted to figure out was to make sure that all the taxes were collected. And so, interestingly, the Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman army, 
but they couldn't avoid paying taxes. And so Joseph and Mary, they leave the home village of Nazareth, they head to Bethlehem, and Joseph is very likely knowing that this journey is only going to result in him having a bigger tax bill. And no one likes a bigger tax bill, right? So this journey was tough. Uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 140 kilometers. So that's Alexandra to Milton, or Alexandra to Omadama, or Alexandra to Makarora. It's quite, quite a distance, 140 k's. It would have taken them at least a week of walking, possibly up to 10 days, through some very rugged, rocky terrain, hot days, cold nights. Uh, they'd have to carry all their food and water. They'd have to be on the lookout for dangers through the desert roads. So it was not an easy journey. And the hardest thing of all was that Joseph had a heavily pregnant fiancé. Now, I have not been pregnant, um, but I imagine that when you're in your last trimester, uh, the last thing you want to do is go for a 140-kilometer walk or even ride a donkey for miles and miles and miles. That is not something that would be high on your um, bucket list. But eventually they made it, (coughs) and look what happens next. While they were there... (coughs) The time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. So you think about that for a second. Despite the stresses, the strains of the previous nine months, despite that difficult, treacherous journey, when it seems like things couldn't get any worse, something truly wonderful happened. This this tiny frame of this newborn baby, through him God enters our world. He stepped out of eternity into the nitty-gritty of everyday life. God took on flesh and immersed himself into the midst of our difficulties, our dilemmas, our stresses, our struggles. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And so in that moment, God took arguably one of the worst of times and turned it into the most wonderful time of the year. And so as Joseph and Mary sitting there with this new baby, they are utterly convinced that this baby boy is the hope of the world. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who will bring light and life to a dark and a desperate world. And that's what Jesus did. When he was a growing man, he showed people what God was truly like. He comforted the hurting, he healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he taught the thirsty, he restored the broken, he befriended the lonely, he looked out for the lost, he loved the least, he brought life to the dead, and he shone God's light into people's lives, and he gave people hope. And the true wonder of Christmas is that Jesus reminds us that even the worst of times can become the most wonderful of times through God's grace. So I don't know whether you're at, whether you are loving the Christmas season or where you're just dreading the commercialization and the hustle and bustle or whatever, but I want to remind you this morning, whether you realize it or not, that our discomforts, our difficulties, our dilemmas, our stresses, our struggles, they can actually still have purpose as part of God's plan. Notice that God didn't smooth over that social stigma that Joseph and Mary faced. He didn't soften the bumpy road for them as they traveled to Bethlehem. 
But what God did do was he provided all that they needed. He gave them guidance through angels. He gave them safety on their journey. And he strengthened Joseph and Mary for the challenges that they had to face. And God can do the same for you. He didn't send Jesus to earth for a sightseeing trip. Jesus came to bring us, to bring us hope so that the worst of times could be transformed to the most wonderful of times through the grace and the goodness of God. So if you're stressed this Christmas, if you're struggling with uncertainty or anxiety, then know this, that God sent his one and only son for you. And Jesus knows what it's like to walk this dusty planet. He knows about social stigma, about rejection. He knows about loss and loneliness. He knows what it is to be hungry and thirsty, to be beaten and broken. But in the midst of all that, Jesus brings hope. He brings hope that life is, is bigger than uh, Christmas commercialization. That there's a greater picture, a greater purpose that we can have than just having picture-perfect Christmas tree or a table laden with food. I mean, we don't need that stuff to have Christmas as the most wonderful time of the year. All we need is Jesus, to believe in him, to trust him, to honor him, to love him, to have hope from him, and to live for him. So if you haven't done that, uh, or maybe you have done that in the past, but it's been a long time and you kind of want to refresh that, then I'd love to talk with you. We've got a prayer team after church over here in the corner. We've got people with blue tags. We would love to just help you find your hope in Jesus. And if you, uh, if you have done that, if you have put your hope in Jesus, then I encourage you to share that with someone this Christmas season. Maybe you could give them a gift. Maybe you could volunteer your time. Maybe, as Mighty said, you could invite them to our Christmas Eve service. Just do something that cuts through that commercialization and that consumerism and focuses people on the true wonder of this time of the year. Let's pray together. God, um, as we lean in <clears throat> to this Christmas season, I really pray that Joyce has already said that we would see the wonder in it all, the true wonder in it all, and know that despite our difficulties, our dilemmas, our decisions that we have to make, that your son brings us.